This is an ABC podcast. Margaret Humphreys is a former social worker from Nottingham in the UK. One day in 1986, Margaret received a letter from Australia. It was a request from a woman who was looking for her birth certificate so she could get married. The woman mentioned in her letter that she'd migrated to Australia alone as a small child from England after her parents had died. At the time, Margaret thought it was an odd letter and that it couldn't possibly be true. I mean, who sends a four-year-old orphan kid out to the other side of the world by themselves? As Margaret looked into the matter, she was drawn into a much, much bigger story than she could ever have imagined, an ever-widening story. She uncovered an obscure international scheme that was staggering in its ambition and in its heartlessness. In the following decades, Margaret worked both as a detective and as counsellor to give these former child migrants some sort of link to their past, to their family and to their identity. And she founded an organisation called the Child Migrants Trust. And for her work, she's been made a member of the Order of Australia. Hi, Margaret. Hello. What kind of lessons did your parents drum into you when you were, when you were little about how you should live your life and conduct yourself? I was brought up in a Methodist family where John Wesley and all the things that go with uh, Methodism were, were talked about and practised. So they didn't drink, they didn't gamble, but were very much into responsibility. We all had responsibilities for each other. I had two, two sisters that were much older than me and I was born just after the war. So um, my parents were sort of middle-aged at that point, but had, I think as a lot of uh, parents did, as I can remember, had kind of great expectations for their children that were born around 40, 1944 and thereafter. And were these career expectations or kind of moral expectations of you? I think they were both. I think they were both coming out of the war that they'd seen, of course, great losses of people, Lots of the families in the area where I brought up had sons that never came back uh, from the war. So I think there was a strong kind of moral tone for the children born afterwards. As I say, I say they had expectations of us, and I certainly can remember feeling that. So you were expected to be of use, do you think? Most certainly. It was all about the contribution that we could make to make things better and to have useful lives. Very strong on responsibility. So you had these strong, uh, supportive, lovely parents and grandparents in your life too when you were little? I can't remember too much about grandparents, but certainly grandparents were there in my early years. I remember that sense of them. I think the generations of that family run through all of us, a bit of history that runs through all of us to this day probably. What were you when when your father died? Well, I was uh, I was thirteen around that time. Difficult a uh, time to lose a parent at that age, um, and I remember that quite well. Do you remember him getting sick, or did he try and conceal that? I think it was concealed from me a lot. So, from my memories are that there wasn't any much difference between in terms of time between being told and, and seeing that he was ill and him dying. As you get older, you kind of uh, look back and reflect on that and think 
that must have been a much longer period of being unwell, and I was probably protected from that. How was your mum after he died? I think very difficult time for her, very sad, uh, very difficult. And I think people grieve differently in those days as well to now not so open. They tend to keep it very much the pain and the sadness to themselves, but were kind of comforted by connection to church, connection to a community that supported each other and had come through lots of loss during the war, men in particular not coming back, so there was a lot of families that were where there was always an empty chair. Then in the kind of next few years, within a very short time, you, your, your mum died, then both your grandparents died. Mm. So how old were you when you realised when, when both your parents were gone and both your grandparents mm. were gone, Margaret? I think I can remember being about 16 and realising um, that it wasn't just people, close people had gone, but family home too as well. Um, because I was the youngest. Both my sisters were married as well. So I remember that, yeah, quite vividly, that that period of time. On reflection, do you think that losing both parents and grandparents at, at such a young age has really shaped your life and shaped your experience and your sense of the world and what's important? I think it's shaped my life, of course, um, because you haven't got parents there when you're all sorts of things are happening to you from 16 onwards as well. So probably, although I had strong relationships uh, with my sisters and particularly my elder sister, so the, the family kept very close close together. But of course, I think when you experience that kind of uh, that kind of loss, of course it shapes you. You've been exposed to something that's very painful. But has it had a big impact in my professional work? Um, I wouldn't say uh, I wouldn't say that in a big sense. But of course, loss is part of all of us, and the thing is how we recover from that. So you took up social work. Did you find it satisfying at the outset? Social work, mm. of course. It's a really important contributing profession which embraces lots of areas, you know, mental health, the protection of children, the support of families that are struggling, a whole, a whole range of issues social workers are involved with. So what was the nature of the work you were doing in 1986 when that letter arrived? Well, really complex work with children children that were children that were at risk children that were in some cases being harmed so some of my work around that time was actually removing children um, from high risk situations within families now that is insightful work when you take a child from a mother and father within weeks of them being born because it's deemed the risk is so high to them you can't help but think 20 years on. What is their future? What is going to happen to these children? And your job is around placing them with loving, secure families and people, and you want that to give protection. See, Margaret, I don't know if you'll be impressed by this statement, but I'm in awe of people who do social work because 
I think a lot of us like to solve problems and finish and be done with them. But a lot of the time in the nature of social work, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're just taking a terrible situation and making it not quite so bad. Is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think that's right. You are often working in terrible situations, really terrible situations. I've worked in situations where children have been murdered by family and then you have to move in and take away the other children. So it's very high-risk work and, as you say, it's about looking at something that's pretty awful and trying to make that, in many ways, better for the most vulnerable people, which are always going to be the children. So, like I say at the start, you received that letter from Australia from the woman who said, I migrated to Australia alone as a small child and... I'm trying to find my birth certificate so I can get married. What was it that struck you that was so very odd about that letter at the time that really caught your eye, Margaret? Well, I couldn't comprehend that um, a four-year-old would be put on a boat with lots of other children, with no parents, no family, and to be sent to the other side of the world. Now, you know, how can we imagine such a thing at that time in the late 80s? And and I'm an inner-city social worker dealing responding to the things that we've just spoken about. And this letter comes that I was four, I was born in Nottingham, I was put on a boat, sent to the other side of the world with lots of other children and no parents and told my parents are dead. And then says in the letter, please find my mother. So what did you do? Did you disregard it at first or did you then follow it up? Well, I was kind of a bit taken back at that point, taken back. And and the first thing, to my shame, was to think this can't be true. How could this be possibly be true? So she must be confused about some... Probably she went with foster parents. So I was pretty taken aback by that. And so history tells us this. I wrote back to her and really tried to say as nicely as I could, it can't really be like that. But if you want me to find your birth certificate, of course I will do that so that you, whatever. And that's when a kind of a a realisation was she wrote back and said there were lots of children with me. There were lots. And I thought this was just terrible. Awful. If it was true, if it was true in those numbers, it was so awful and wrote to her and then came to see her and then, of course, found her mother very much alive. Yes, this is the thing. She presumed, being having been told she was an orphan, that her mother was deceased. So did you begin by looking for a death certificate yes. for the mother? Yes. And then found she was alive. Could find no death certificate at all for her mother. And what happened when you approached this woman, this mother, that was very much alive? Well, in a, in, in a sense, it kind of... A, started to tell the story in many senses. So um, she didn't know her daughter had been sent uh, sent to Australia. She didn't know that. Um, she didn't know where her young child had gone. And there started to unfold, if you like, the story of mothers and fathers. Did the mother believe she'd, she'd just simply put the child up for adoption? Is that what had happened? Her mother believed that she had been placed for adoption in the UK and that she probably wouldn't ever see her again. Um, so it was absolutely... She couldn't get her head round herself how a child could... Her child, in particular, could be sent to the other side of the world without her permission and consent and involvement and felt very betrayed by the authorities. So what happened when you went to the Australian High Commission in London to inquire about 
this woman's well, yeah. so- alleged solo voyage to well, Australia. Well, of course, it, that, that was in the very early days and, you know, the natural point to go to at that point for me was to kind of go and see what the Australian High Commissioner would think about this. And um, and as I've said on many occasions, you know, I went into the Australian High Commission and was kind of rebuffed nicely but clearly told to go and talk to my own government at that point. You see, you've got to remember at that point, I was much younger than I am now and I'm not experienced in international affairs. And so it all started to, well, as I often say, that that one letter, in a sense, lifted the lid on Britain's child migrant policies over many, many decades and 130,000 children over years had been part of a migration Commonwealth scheme. How did you go about looking for some other similar child migrants to the woman who wrote to you, Margaret? Well, of course, what you're trying to do is to get some truth and reality to a situation where people all round can articulate what happened to them as young children. And so you're dealing with memories, feelings. And so I'm trying to, at that point, look at where can I start So let's try and start with some records. Let's try and start with something that's factual and not all about feelings. Feelings are enormous, enormous for somebody to come and say to you, I don't know who I am. And how did I get... Did I do something wrong? Didn't my country want me? So the feelings are profound about abandonment and rejection. And so to then start and try and convert that into something like a record... It's quite hard because you're overwhelmed with the feelings of it. How did you get them to come forward to you in the first place? Well, I think in those early days I um, put a very small advert in the Sydney Morning Herald, so that's late 80s. What, in the classified section? <laughs> I can't remember. I just put something in that said something really simple that said, uh, and also looking back a bit ridiculous because I was saying... If you came here as a small child on a boat with lots of other children from the UK, I'd be happy if you'd get in touch with me. And what was the response to this? Well, my response, first of all, was to say, nobody's going to answer no. this. Right. <laughs> you know, I know nobody's <laughs> going to answer this. And then, of course, the avalanche came a small at a time, small letters at a time. Still got all those letters. Of course I have, that people wrote and said, just read this, I came on a boat here, I came on a boat here with lots of other children when we didn't have parents and we were sent to institutions. So you look at this post bag and you think, what? You're a social worker in Nottingham at this point. Did you start to worry you'd gotten yourself embroiled in some very big story? Were you feeling over... I, mean, I think I'd be feeling overwhelmed at this point, Margaret. Were you starting to feel overwhelmed by what you were finding out? I was starting to feel very ignorant as I didn't know about this, that none of my social work colleagues who are bright people, <laughs> you know, know the ways of the world, never did heard of it at all, none of us. So that... That was a challenge and it was a struggle. I didn't know the enormity of it. I didn't want it to be a huge issue. I just thought if it, if it was just one person, it was awful. So at this stage, it's still all anecdotal. You still don't have the records. You came out to Australia. You got a trip funded to Australia to meet some of these, these people who'd written to you. What kind of stories were they telling you once you got to meet them face to face? Well, they were really confirming what had been told to me by the First Lady. But, of course, it developed into something that there were lots and lots of children 
and that this wasn't just one boat bringing children that had gone on a long time. And, of course, once I moved into Western Australia, where hundreds of children were sent, it became a very different story indeed. So had these children been sent to foster families or was it nearly entirely into institutions? Almost entirely to large institutions and particularly very large in Western Australia and other places like Queensland, Sydney, Adelaide. And, the, and actually there's a piece, a historic piece in a newspaper uh, with a picture of two really young children arriving and it said, UK tots, not for adoption. And both these children, I think my recollection would be, were under five under five. So the whole policy around child migration to Australia in particular was not about families, was not about secure, loving homes. It was about institutions. So you're hearing stories then about children being sent to institutions, uh, living in dormitories, stories <laughs> of forced labour from, from, from children? Or, or very much so. Uh, you're very much so. And some children had to build the very institution um, that they were, I say, live in. And they would today, if you look at the evidence that's given today, say it wasn't living, it was about slavery, it was about abuse, it was about daily abuse. And people knowing that we had no one, no one was ever going to come and see us, no one was ever going to send us a birthday card. When you started to look at the bigger picture, names had been changed, birthdays had been, birth dates had been changed. So... What does that tell you, I wonder? I think for that period, when I was looking for families, looking for birth certificates and things like that, well, I'll give you an example of that. So I was asked to find a birth certificate and find a family of a, of a child migrant in Western Australia. And I couldn't find her birth certificate anywhere. So also she had a name, she had a date of birth. I was looking years around it, just as if the year was a bit wrong or whatever. Couldn't find it. So in the end, I had to sit with her and say, look, let's go through every minute from when you arrived you got off the boat, what happened? Who did you see? How did you get to the place, the institution? What happened? And then as I took her through every moment of that, the weather, the smell, the children, what she, there was a moment she said, and when I got there, I was the one that had no bed. Everybody had a bed but me. And it was an empty bed and I said, that's not mine, that's not mine, because that's not my name. That's not my name. So tell me the name. Please tell me the name above the bed, which she did. And then I found her birth certificate. Was she remembering that as she was telling you that story? I went through everything. It's like when you... Well, so it was the, what the effect did that have on her to remember as she's look, telling this, you this story? Well, look, this is about trauma. If something oh. is very traumatic, you are going to remember every single detail of it oh. and it's really embedded in you. So you live a long time with that never looked at again. It's there, it causes damage, it causes pain, but it is, as the word says, it is trauma. So the trauma for her was the journey, the taking away, arriving at a strange place and no bed for her but this empty bed with a name above it. And she remembered that name. She remembered that name. And since then, I was able to find a birth certificate 
That's huge. I really don't know. This is your name your mother gave you. This is your name. So from that, we were able to find her family. On this trip to Australia, obviously if you've come all this way from England, you're not going to be fobbed off like you might have been fobbed off at the High Commission in Aldwych in London. What happened when you went to Canberra and wanted to see some records? Well, they were all difficult. You could access to records during that time were really a no, no. You're not going to have access for all these reasons. So records during that period of time to get access to them was a complete nightmare. What about FOI, Freedom of Information Laws? Yeah, I don't think Freedom of Information, in as, as we know it now, was open in those days. The, the, really around those issues were around access to records. So whose records are they? Who records belong to? So that was the argument. Are they your records? Are they the British government's records? Or are they this person's records? It is the link to who they are, to their identity, to their family. And, and also the bigger issues is how did these children come here and for what purpose? Clearly this is where you need the help of journalists and you went to The Observer that wrote a big piece on all this. Yeah. What effect did that have? Did that go off like yeah. a bit of a bomb? Well, I mean, that's when journalism was about exploring and investigating, investigating to wherever it took you. So Finding out things that people don't want you to find out. Don't want mm. you to, yeah. So during that period of time, I mean, I think, you know, I was very fortunate to work alongside really good investigative journalists. So, um, yeah, so they kind of ran this big story in The Observer, you know, our children sent to the other side of the world and the kind of histories of three or four children. And so that was um, that was a start, really, of what I would say exposing this practice. It was out there, so... It was a pretty tough time. How many more letters came in after that Observer piece oh, was hundreds, run in, in hundreds, hundreds and hundreds? So this is when you set up the Child Migrants Trust. What was the stated purpose of this organisation, Margaret? Well, it was then as it is now. Exactly the same is to reunite former child migrants, only former child migrants, work with any other group, with their families, with their country, with their identity, to restore basic human rights to this group of people and to their families. Was it, in a sense, a race against time, given that a lot of these people who'd approached you, who told you they'd been sent to Australia, been deported to Australia, I think was the phrase Gordon Brown used, you told me? That's right. Under the understanding that they were orphans when, in fact, a great many of them were not. Was this, in a sense, a race against time to connect them with the living parents who were still living before those parents died? Mm. Well, one of the things that I kind of said it all the time, you know, to governments, to prime ministers, to wherever, so much can be done now, but every day counts. It took many, many years after for an inquiry into aspects of child migration. We have to remember that child migrants to this very day, to this very day, have never had an inquiry that is totally into their circumstances. They've been part of other inquiries, most certainly, and the Royal Commission, 
but a formal, which they've always asked for, is a judicial inquiry into child migration. To this very day, that has not occurred. That, in some ways, is incredible, given the huge violations that this group have endured, have suffered, and had the resilience at times to come forward to inquiries and to share the appalling circumstances that they've endured and lived through. But to answer your point about time, that's still what I would say today, all these years later, that every day still counts for them. It seems like the opposite of hurry up and wait. You know, this thing is goes on for decades and nothing happens for decades. And then suddenly there's this race. Suddenly you have to hurry up to connect these 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 <laughs> deported children with their parents. Look such as they are. Uh, yes. All that's all of all of the above. But look, we're a lot more informed now. There's been two national apologies, um, there's been the Royal Commission, there's been inquiries in the UK too. But it's still the same situation, that we need to move quick to do everything, everything that we can, and I'm mindful all the time, that during that decade, that lost decade in the 90s, when parents were alive, there are many people who have not met their mothers and fathers because of the inaction during that period of time. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Margaret, your husband came on board at some point here. Your husband, Merv, to help you. How was Merv able to help you in this detective work? Well, Merv was a social worker too at that point in Nottingham and had uh, he too had great interest um, in history and more so in government policy, those kinds of issues around policies and government and what have you. So he too was, of course, very supportive uh, of exploring further and uh, is always remindful that we need to be vigilant when we see things like this and not accept them and pursue it and investigate it. So at that point, we were still investigating what had happened and I was investigating, for the want of a better word, families. So uh, he would very much be looking at what was the policy, what is its history, where did it come from? My work was really totally dedicated at that point to working with individuals and to find mothers and fathers. And what did mothers and fathers have to say? And how would I do that 50 years on? How would I, what would I do when I found a mother? What was I going to say? How was I going to knock on the door? What was the right thing to do? So all those things around good professional practice were on my mind all the time because it was a great challenge what would happen the first time I sat in front of a mother? What would happen? How would, how would we talk about it? So those were the things that were consuming me at that point while 
you know, Mervyn was really looking at the history of these schemes. What were they all about? What, what were they for? Tell me about the ad he uncovered from 1954 for something called the Fairbridge Society. Well, there was this advert. Two children, two or three children, said, give them an opportunity. Let's send them to Australia. Give them an opportunity. But the policy issues around it, and this is well documented... It was a kind of explicit policy that this was for white children only and to populate the British Empire with those... I, I, you know, I still find it difficult to say these words even now. Good white British stock. Good white British stock. Now, these are parents, children... Boys, girls. I even find it difficult now to say those words. Recently, I was listening to a programme in the UK about care, children in care now, children in care in the past, and a West Indian young man came on the programme, and I think this is interesting. He said, if you were in care in the 50s and 60s in England, in care, being black, was terrible, but the only thing that our colour ever saved us for was being sent to Australia, where they had a far worse time. Oh. What were the institutions involved in this scheme? You mean who are they? Mm. Who were they? Yeah. Well, they were all the big charitable and religious organisations, the very organisations that my parents brought me up to give to to actually give to and support during those early post-war years. So they would be household names, mainly the churches, and the National Children's Home, Bernardo's, the Fairbridge Society, and lots of uh, church organisations, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. One would, I think, said at that point, all the good and the great, was terms I've, I've heard used very often, all the good and the great. How long was this scheme going on until? When did it? When did? When was it finally dismantled? I think. The, I think the last child to actually come out on the child migrant screams was um, in the early um, 1970s. But the figures, of course, started to go down a lot. You mentioned Perth was a particularly interesting place for this. In, was this, I'm imagining, probably because was it the first point of embarkation, uh, de disembarkation in Australia where the, the boat would arrive at Perth before uh, elsewhere? Fremantle. In Fremantle. Yeah, yeah. You went on radio in Perth and talked about this and, again, deluged with people as they came forward after that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, yet again, you know, at that, at that point, all those years ago, didn't know whether anyone would turn up and, of course, the following morning, there were just queues of people, men, women. At that point of meeting people, the emotions take over. I mean, yeah. most of these men and women were uh, devastated. They were um, in tears most of the time, recounting. And at that point, thinking very much, could there be anybody out there? So my job was really about trying to give some hope because we'd already found uh, some families of giving hope. Their recollections were leaving uh, the UK, sometimes with a teddy bear, sometimes with a toy, certainly with clothes that were their own to be sent in, only to arrive in Fremantle. 
um, be taken on some on the back of a truck way out to Bindoon and other places. Some brothers and sisters were separated there and then. And John Hennessy, a former child migrant from Sydney, would often say in his evidence to inquiries, I have to live with the screams, the trauma of those schemes today. Even today I hear it. So that's kind of that people could remember that and talk about that to me and how the, the few things they had, the very few things that they had were taken from them. So they had a teddy bear was taken from them. Their clothes, their underwear was taken off them and put in very different kind of, they, w- they would say, and said many, many times, rags. That's how they described it. And never to see those only things they had in the world, really, taken from them and never to be seen again. When you asked them, why do you think you were sent to Australia, what would they often say? I didn't often have to ask that because they would tell me straight away, nobody wanted me, not my country, not anybody. I've never received a letter from home. I've never had a birthday card. Many many of them had the wrong birthday anyway, date of birth. And it was just a picture of uh, feelings of just total abandonment and rejection, and from your country too. So I wasn't able... There wasn't a time when you'd, I'd be able to sit down and say, now, did you come here on this boat, or how do you... you know? It was just, uh, just awful trauma, even then, even then. And at that point, of course, I, I didn't know about the appalling abuse, both physical abuse, the emotional abuse was obvious, of course, but then the sexual abuse, and that took some time for that. But the feeling that never occurred to them that their parents might be alive, never occurred. So just just that, just that betrayal. So the joy of finding mother still alive and brothers and sisters the joy of that was always tinged with the betrayal how could somebody betray us in this way why should we have been treated like that and our mothers and fathers too so many had been told that they were orphans when they got on that boat and came to australia how often was that really the case though i think for me and for my colleagues We've only met under five, probably one or two people whose both parents had died at the point that they were deported. What were some of the other countries these kids were sent to, other than Australia, Margaret? Yeah, it was part of a Commonwealth scheme, so Canada, New Zealand and Rhodesia that became Zimbabwe were the main places that children were sent to within the Commonwealth. When you approach some of these agencies, these institutions that had taken in these children, these deported children, I mean, decades had passed. Are they willing to assist you in looking into these schemes? I mean, the people who were in charge of them now, well, at at that point, were presumably not the same people who'd been 
they're running the schemes. Well, maybe so, I don't know. But were they willing to own up to this and look into the history of this thing? I would say, and I think my colleagues would say too, that the response of those days was denial. Everywhere was denial. And denial and distancing. I, mean, I remember once having a letter from a social worker who worked, I'm sure, worked for Bernardo's and as a social worker and wrote to me and said, I'm a social worker, blah, blah, blah. And was my employer ever involved in child migration? Now, Bernardo's was the one of the biggest child migration agencies. So there we had, there's your story, you see. Here we have a social worker working there, I'm sure doing good work, whatever, but didn't know the history of his employer. That's a story in itself, isn't it? Presumably you need a lot of resources to undertake this work. You're getting no help, obviously, from these charities and organisations. Any help from government or from private benefactors? Well... I think government were very slow in coming forward to, A, acknowledge they were involved in this kind of child care, as they would call it. Lots of people didn't meet their families because of that. So it was denial everywhere for a very, very long time. So, no, people didn't rush forward to fund the trust. People didn't rush forward to have an understanding of what had happened to these children, British citizens, where we had an ongoing responsibility at all, the name of the response was denial. But a private benefactor did come forward. Uh, some did, yes, individuals. In individuals came forward that were touched by it and were uh, shocked by it and could see that the opportunity for finding families, for dealing with this, responding to it in, in a responsible humanitarian way was possible. So there were individuals, individuals that actually helped to support financially the work of the Trust in those early days on the basis that it would take time to get governments to the table. It sounds like you and the survivors were making, like, hundreds of tiny cracks in this shell that was protecting the scheme, the, st the story yeah. behind the scheme. What was the moment when you really started to feel that this was starting to crack right open at long last? Well, it was challenging. Those years were very challenging and they were particularly challenging for me. I had death threats. My family were under siege with it. So that they were very difficult times. Why would people issue a death threat? I suppose that if you're an organisation that knows that the children have been sexually abused over years by multiple perpetrators. I guess that the finding of one's family for an individual child was one thing, but what was that going to reveal? Because there were times when I didn't know that was the issue. But soon, when people had the confidence, the confidence that we were professional, that we were... The biggest thing was trust. How do you build trust when all that has happened to a child and they've had to... What mechanisms have they used to survive? Well, one of them is to trust nobody. So during those years, part of my work was to establish trust. Now, how do you establish trust? Well, you deliver. You show people that it can be done, that they can have hope that they can trust, but you have to do it. So for years, and still today, 
still today, the culture of the trust is keep the child migrants at the heart of everything you do. We're a specialist team, deals with trauma, deals with giving evidence, with helping people recover. And for years, I was of the view that it was about identity, it was about belonging, it was about really feeling all the time that nobody wanted you, even your country wanted you. But what was it underlining all of that, which is bad enough, was that they were exposed to the most appalling abuse. You only have to look at the inquiries where they've had the strength. They've had the strength to get to a point where they can tell us. And that took a long time. Over time, as more and more documents were made available to you, what did you come to understand was the thinking behind this scheme back in the day? I'm not sure. I don't know what you think. I'm not sure I entirely subscribed. Oh, that was how people fought back in the day. I don't know when it was ever acceptable to separate siblings and, and tell them a whole pack of lies in order to get them to move one side of the globe to the other. What was the thinking behind this well, scheme? You know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you raised that as a point because during those days, one of the things that would always be said to me was. You don't understand. You were born after these. These were the standards of the day, and that was said to be time and time again. And in giving evidence, to, I mean, I've given evidence to twelve inquiries and one royal commission. I've continually said, "When was it lawful to rape a child? Can you tell me when that was lawful, please?" What I tend to say now and what I feel and what I feel for people of our generation and younger generations is don't get into this groove of, well, that was the standards of the day. Let's turn this round and say, actually, what are the standards of today? What are our standards today in relation to child migrants and their families? We need to focus on that. What are we all about today? What are our responsibilities today? Your focus has quite rightly, as you say, been on the survivors with the people who were caught in this, this scheme. But if we can take a step right back, we want to go 30,000 feet in the air above this scheme. To me, what this looks like to me is like one of the, a classic example of the great scourge of the 20th century, which was social engineering. Social engineering was practised in you know, the Soviet Union where whole countries were emptied and people populations were moved. Collective farming is introduced and we, we're all well aware of what the Nazis did. Apartheid, a classic example of heartless and cruel and racist social engineering. It was the great scourge of the 20th century. Do you see it as being a piece of this kind of fetish for moving people around like pawns on a chessboard in order to achieve some kind of social out perceived social outcome in, in the future? Well, of course. Uh, of course. I mean, why would you, for example... Well, why would you do any of this without knowing what your outcome is? You're looking for an outcome, aren't you, in a sense? What could it be? Well, what could it be? These were young, defenceless children being sent away for some policy around racism, around white children only could come to Australia. What did they think was going to happen to the children that they sent to uh, Zimbabwe? So the thinking was in Britain, we have too many poor white children. Australia and other countries like Rhodesia, the former Rhodesia, Full. have need of more white children. That was it, pretty much? Oh, that was it. There's been, uh, of course, arguments put forward of like on anything like this is what was the economic imperative? Was there one? 
And, of course, there were subsidies, subsidies to the agencies that took the children. They were paid. In 2009, the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, made a speech in which he apologised to the forgotten children, as they were called, the former child migrants. This is what he said. We come together today to deal with an ugly chapter in our nation's history. And we come together today to offer our nation's apology. To say to you, the forgotten Australians, and those who were sent to our shores as children without their consent, that we are sorry. Sorry that as children you were taken from your families and placed in institutions where so often you were abused. Sorry for the physical suffering, the emotional starvation, and the cold absence of love, of tenderness, of care. What did that mean to the survivors to hear the Prime Minister of Australia make that speech? Acknowledgement, a complete acknowledgement that their experience was being recognised at last by the Australian Prime Minister. Yeah. Gordon Brown, then British Prime Minister, then British Prime Minister issued a, a speech, where a, yeah. a similar apology. And what was it like for the survivors to hear that? Well, it was a, a very detailed apology because these were British children, of course, and part of British policy. And so it had a real meaning, a real meaning that their country, their country at last, at very last, welcomed them home. And a lot of child migrants were there for that apology. And um, Gordon Brown spoke to every one of them prior to the apology, every one of them. And I think probably that's the first nation's apology that I know of where um, there has been an immediate response. So there was immediate response by a former child migrant to Gordon Brown on that day. So it was a very, very emotional day. It was a day had been waited for. As they said, we have waited all our lives for this moment. You know, I said early on that I think it's always struck me that so much of social work is taking a catastrophic situation and just making it not quite so bad. I don't think I believe in the word closure, and I don't. And I think people may have used the word closure. Say, so, oh well, this gives these people closure. I don't think. I don't think you get closure from this, do you? But does it make? Does it? It, it's, it clearly helps quite a bit to hear a prime minister say things like that. Mm. Well, I hear this word closure a lot. It kind of means different things to different people. But for governments, I think it means, uh, yeah, dare I say, it probably means, OK, we fixed it, that's the end of the problem. Well, there's no end in sight for child migrants or their families because this is a generational issue. Trauma goes through families, it changes families, it shapes families. So closure, well, I've been doing this work for, what, 40 years? I've never seen closure. I'd like to know what it looks like, what it is, I don't know about closure. I don't know about it in every uh, sense, of course. We have to deal with loss. It's part of life. I haven't seen closure. Whatever that means, I don't recognise it. During your investigation and other investigation into the authorities, did you find in the documents any voice speaking up? If voices speaking up going, what are we doing here? Uh, is this wise? Is this Is this kind? Are we crazy? What's the, uh, some voices raised in dissent within yeah. the powers that be? Yeah, there were a few. There were a few. One, I'm really proud to say, uh, was a director of social work and she 
raised the issue and said this isn't how we should be treating children, any children. Certainly we shouldn't be treating our children in this way. And I think this has got something... I think this is a quote from actually. This was in, I think, the 50s or the early 60s when she said, I believe there are sticky fingers in this. And I, th- I didn't understand what that reference was, particularly at that time, but it was, this is all about money and economics. The economic incentives. The economics, yeah. The day. Where are you with all this at the moment, all these years later? This Where am I with? Yeah, yeah, just right with this, this process. It's 40 years on, or not nearly 40 years on it's from when you got that letter. Yeah. You got Since you got that letter. Nearly 40 years on. Well, great change on this issue, isn't there? I mean, the first thing we look at is um, restoring people to their families. Still, that is our priority. And identity and belonging, it's a human right, it's there, it's about all of those things that for us we all take for granted. And in a sense, that's what Gordon Brown said that day to the child migrants. The things that we take for granted, you must be able to do, and we will always help you do that. Big statement and correct. Of course, that's about that, Uh, all of those things. So, well, have things improved? Of course they have. Has there been huge mammoth change on these issues of understanding of accepting rather than denying, uh, yes. Did it take too long? Of course, of course. But we are in a different place now. And the child migrants themselves, like myself, we're all getting older. We're 40 years older from that time when there was so much hope, so much hope. I'm reminded of that old saying, you know, the only rights you really truly have are the rights you can defend. Children can't defend their rights. That's, that seems to be a big lesson here, that when it comes to government's handling of children who don't have parents to represent their best interests, the greatest care and transparency must be exercised. It seems to me that's one of the big lessons of this, Margaret. That's one of the big lessons, of course, around that. The other lessons are about identity and uh, that children become adults and abuse children have difficult adult lives, it impacts, it goes on. So ever vigilant around um, those kinds of issues in protecting children and protecting violence, whether it's in families, whether it's in institutions, it is our responsibility, all of us, not just government. What an amazing, powerful story, Margaret. Thank you for all your work. Thank you. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Dr Margaret Humphreys has been awarded the Order of Australia for her work in establishing the Child Migrants Trust. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.